Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is March 22nd, 2013. This is episode 1095 of the Survival Podcast, and uh, it's Friday, Friday, Friday. And I'm usually jazzed up on Friday, especially lately, because once I get done, man, it's the weekend, and I got all the time and to work on my homestead, and I got the chickens out, and everything's going good, and today it's like 44 degrees with wind chill, like in the lower 30s, and the little chickens can't really be out in that, because they're not feathered out yet, and poor things were locked up in the brooder all day yesterday, because we were gone all day, uh, we woke up about 0400 yesterday, We were out of here before 5 a.m. We drove up to north north of Hot Springs. We picked up the last bit of stuff that's been sitting at our house up there. And then we turned around and we drove straight back and uh, got home around 7 last night. It was 70 degrees and beautiful. And now it's 40 degrees and crappy. So the birds are locked up. But... uh It is Friday, 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 so it is time for your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. We'll get to those in a minute. I want to throw out a little thing about yesterday's interview. Um, if you know anybody anywhere that owns a weapon <clears throat> that says, I would use it to defend my home, uh, whether they're into preparedness or modern survivalism or homesteading or not, please send them yesterday's episode and say, look, I don't care if you ever listen to another thing that this maniac survivalist guy has to say. You own a gun. You've said that this is something you would use to defend yourself or your family or another person. And this interview may save you from spending time in prison or being unlawfully or, you know, successfully sued, even though you did nothing wrong. It might save, uh, not maybe save your life, but save the life that you live after a lethal force incident. It's that important. And if you've listened to that interview, I'm going to suggest you listen to it again. My wife and I actually listened to it twice yesterday, even though I conducted it. And we, we've put the, the, the five point checklist down on paper and we we're committing it to memory. Uh, so that if we ever have to, we know exactly what we're going to do. And we're putting the plan in place uh, beyond what we had for ourselves. Mossad's uh, suggestions yesterday were absolutely amazing. I've had suggestions that we add him to the expert council. I'll ask. I'll see. Uh, Mossad's kind of a busy guy. I don't know if he'll accept that or not. Uh, I, like many of you, was extremely honored to hear that he and his girlfriend both listened to the Survival Podcast and have for a long time. It's really a huge honor to to actually be uh, reaching somebody like Masada Yub and, and to know that he actually thinks that what we're doing is uh, valuable. Uh, that's quite a bit of validation, I guess, of what we already knew about the value we have in this community. Before we get to your calls, uh, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors today. Sponsor of the day number one, uh, we had her on as an interview this week. Uh, Marjorie Wildcraft of BackyardFoodProduction.com with a DVD, Growing Your Groceries. If you want to learn how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, Go to BackyardFoodProduction.com, get the DVD series, Growing Your Groceries. I've been asked by people, is it the same video that she had that was originally just called Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm? Yep, it's repackaged. It's the same one. If you already own it, don't buy another one unless you want to give it to somebody. It makes a great gift. Um, but I've been honored. I told her, you need to do something next. I mean, there's, there's people here that want to buy from you. They would love you to go more detail on 
one or two particular aspects of your operation. But if you haven't gotten the first uh, DVD series yet, uh, buy it, and you'll see what you'll become part of the group. Going, what about part two? What about part three? Come on, let's do some more because uh, it's just that good. Check it out today, backyardfoodproduction.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. You know, Frank Sharp Jr. Uh, can help you deal with the immediate aftermath of a lethal force oper uh, uh, use because it may be, okay, we got the bad guy down. We know that you're not supposed to render aid to him. We learned that from Assad, that it, it doesn't do you any good, and it puts you at risk, and he is still a threat. Um, you should call for paramedics and wait. But what if what if somebody else was injured before you had a chance to respond? Um, if you're going to carry a weapon capable of taking life, you might be somewhere where life is taken. That's just the way it works. If you if you carry a weapon and you're in a fight, there's going to be a weapon at the fight, and people get hurt, uh, either inadvertently or on purpose by the bad guy. And if that is the case, then part of carrying is also being able to render aid. And uh, Frank Sharp Jr. offers all types of tactical courses, including tactical first aid courses. So it's a complete package from learning how to effectively use your handgun or your carbine or your shotgun for the defense situations on the street or at home and knowing how to render life-saving aid. And, you know, I've already heard from several of his students that said, thank God I haven't had to use the gun training I, I, I learned there yet. But I've already used the first aid training because people get hurt sometimes when it has nothing to do with a gun going off. So if you want complete training uh, to become as, as, as tactically uh, competent as you possibly can, check out FortressDefense.com and book some training with Frank and his cadre of instructors. Additionally, let's say you want some training. And Frank's in Indiana. You don't want to go to Indiana. It's too far. You live in, I don't know, Sheboyganville wherever that is, and you're like, I don't want to go to Indiana. Well, how about this? Get five or six or ten of your buddies together. Phone up Frank. He'll talk to you. He'll find a range or a place that you can conduct training in your area. And Frank will come to Sheboyganville and give you guys training. And it doesn't have to be Sheboyganville. You get the point. It's a made-up place that I made up. They could be anywhere in America. If you live anywhere in America, this applies to you. Check them out today, FortressDefense.com. Uh, next, I want to remind you guys about WalkingToFreedom.com. That forum is growing rapidly. Uh, everybody that is asked to be a member of the forum uh, by signing up as a member and waited for their membership to be approved uh, to keep the spammers out, the Viagra people out, the people who want to tell you Louis Vuitton knockoff bags from China out, uh, your membership should be approved. Go try to log in. If you didn't get an email saying it was approved, it's probably in your spam box or something like that. We'd love to have you at walkingtofreedom.com. Those who have a membership that are posting, that are over there, that haven't voted on the naughty list yet, please vote. We want as many people as possible to vote on the naughty list at walkingtofreedom.com. And uh, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Hello, Jack. I'm a new listener, and I have two questions. Uh, my name is Daryl. I'm from Texas. And first question is, If I need to clean up 20 acres of woods that has heavy brush, should I buy or rent equipment? Second question, if someone has already leased my land with the intention of using weed killer on his hay, is there a less harmful product that I might suggest to him? Clarification, the first question, about um, 20 acres of my property is wooded with heavy brush, and 
I had uh, thought about buying equipment such as a bobcat with a grappler bucket and maybe even a wood chipper, thinking that this equipment may be useful later. Um, it may could, maybe could uh, lead to another income stream, or maybe I could sell it when I'm finished with uh, cleaning up the land. Um, then the option I have is I could also weigh the specialized maintenance and things I would run into on that equipment versus just renting the equipment. I think uh, the cost of a 15-inch wood chipper would be around 3000 a month. Bobcat would be around 2000 a month, and the grappler bucket would be around 400 a month. Um, so uh, cost of uh, weighs and pros and cons of renting versus buying. Clarification of a uh, second question. Um, I recently caught a podcast where Paul Wheaton talked about weed killer and a long half-life. Um, now, I may not actually use this land for anything other than hay, but then again, I may plant fruit trees on it in the future. So we've already given this gentleman permission to lease the land, and he's already ran the disc and planted the seeds. And I feel it's late in the game to tell him he can't use weed killer. But my question is, could I suggest something mild to him that is less harmful? His family does, does own a farm supply store, so he is likely to have access to a wide range of products. Thank you for all you do, and I appreciate you. Bye-bye. Uh, all right. We got two totally different situations here, and I, I, I gotta believe we're talking about two totally different pieces of land. It might be in the same, uh, holding, but there are two areas that are being managed completely differently. Let's start out with the brush clearing. What do you want to do with this, this brush clearing is the key here. Let's say that you wanted this to be open and be able to access it and, and be able to walk in there and have it cleared out about head height and then, then get an assessment of certain trees need to go and other trees need to stay and, uh, and turn it more of into a grassland savanna, which would be much better for grazing. Uh, or growing anything than clearing it flat level of every tree. If that's what you wanted to do, and you're just thinking, I can't even get in there to figure out what's what yet, what I would do is I would find a local person that has some cattle that they want to graze, and I'd put cattle right into that bush. And you might look at that bush and go, they're not going to get in there. There's nothing in there for them. They will demolish the place. They will go in there, and you will not believe the difference that they will make. That's what I would do. I would go out and find someone with with a with a you know a, a herd of cattle as close as possible, and I'd put cattle in there, uh, and I would do it a little bit at a time, and I would advance them forward using uh, portable fencing, and I would put the cattle through the whole twenty acres. And if you were to put as little as I would say twenty cattle per half acre in that area per day. That at the end of, let's say, 40 days, which isn't that long, and probably less than it would take you to really get anywhere with a backhoe and a wood chipper, you'd be able to take a stroll through there. You'll be able to walk through there like you wouldn't believe. They will open it up. They will gut it out. And if you can put yourself maybe 50 head of cattle in there, you can probably knock down an acre a day close to it anyway with them. And that's what I would do. Now, if you're, gut if you're hell-bent on doing it with equipment, Um, I would probably lease the equipment uh, because the cost is probably going to make it a lot less, um, a, a lot less long term. You, I don't know how much use of this equipment you would get after you're done with your project if your intent is to completely level it. 
And it also depends on what kind of brush we're talking about here. If we're talking about five years of, five years of growth on this land, and there's no trees on it any bigger than, let's say, a coffee cup in diameter, uh, when the cattle are done with it, you won't need to do nothing. They'll, they'll pretty much take 95% of it flat to the ground, tear it up, eat it, stomp it down, and you'll have a, a clean slate. If we're talking about 10, 15, 20-year regrowth and you've got some you know, substantial uh, timber in there, that'll be left standing and everything else will be gone. Uh, and in a lot of situations in land like you're talking, that's what you're looking at. You're like in 15, 10, 15-year regrowth where it gets to where you just feel like there's no way that you can get in there. If it's like two- or three-year stuff, if it's brush, like it's just a little bit bigger than a brush hog can handle, you can do that with cattle too. Uh, and they'll, they'll clean slate that for you. There won't be nothing left after you put them through there. Um, and all of those are better than going in there with a bobcat and chainsaws and shredders and completely demolishing everything. With a caveat, if you were to do it that way and leave about a one inch, two inch layer of wood chips everywhere you went, just, you know, take half of the wood chips that you make for use otherwere and for selling as a material or what have you, and mostly just put it all to the ground, you'd end up with a pretty improved piece of land, but nowhere near what the cattle would do. So I know that your question was really, do I buy or lease the equipment? If you're hell-bent on using it, I would probably lease it. The maintenance, the upkeep, and things like that are, are really expensive. I would probably hire a couple experienced operators, and, and, and I'd get them to do it for me if I wanted it done, honestly, myself. But it's probably not the way I would do it. I would either do it with cattle, or I would go in with the bobcat, and I would open it up first. I wouldn't just take everything out. Um, even if you want to grow hay, well, you can grow a lot of hay without freaking doing it and, you know, wiping out every freaking tree. This is the issue, though. Why would you grow hay? I know you're like, what do you mean, why would I grow hay? Why would you grow hay? Growing hay sucks. And this, we're going to get to the next part. My answer with him is whatever you do with him, he's done after this year. I mean, completely done after this year. So, um... The problem with hay is we go in and we take everything from the land, we cut it, and we take it away, and all the mineral and nutrient, everything that the that whatever we're cutting our hay from, whether it's alfalfa hay or timothy grass or whatever it is, it doesn't matter, right? We've taken it away with the hay, and we've left stubble. And if we spray it with weed killer, it's even worse because none of the other things are growing now, and we've got basically bare earth. And then we're going to disc it again and plant it again. And we're strip mining the soil when we do this. I wouldn't do it. Um, so if I wanted to make money basically growing grass and, and, and natural good weeds on my property, I would lease it to someone who wanted to graze cattle. And a mob grazing operation. That's what I would do. And if I, if you wanted to convert these trees into that, the best way to do it would be start with the cattle straight away. Bring them in, put them through, and then go in and open it up enough, whatever the cattle don't take out. Go in with your bobcat, go in with your shredder, take down enough to open it up, but leave standing timber spursed out like a savanna area and start improving that. Start broadcasting seed into there, into that nicely prepared soil, and in a few months you're starting to push cattle through it again. And you can push them through over and over and over, and the land will get better and better. Now let's turn our sights on this other thing. If the man hadn't already disked the field and put seed down, 
I would tell you to tell him, sorry, buddy, the deal's off. Now you're in a position where it's your word and your honor and you're trying to make good on something you promised and that's as American as it gets. You know, that's as American as, as apple pie. And I wouldn't tell you to go back on your word. I would try to talk him out of putting herbicide in there anyway at all. Don't do it. You, when you, when you wanted to do this, you didn't say anything about weed killer. I don't want weed killer on my property. You want to grow hay? You can grow hay. I don't want weed killer on my property. And I'd be very firm. And he says, I just can't do it. Say, what, tell me what your concern is. And if he says something like this, my concern is that I'll get, you know, X dollars less per acre of yield because I don't use weed killer. If it's anything reasonable, I would refund it to him out of his lease fee and say, this will make you par. So if it's, you know, if it's 10% loss and you can cover it with the lease fee, even if you end up with no lease fee, I would say I'll cover it with your, your, your a refund back on your fee. Let's, let's let it go to the end, but I'll sign a contract with you. I'll shake your hand. I'll look you in the eye. I'll make up the difference. If the quality of the hay is lower because of weeds. Okay. And then say, I want you to understand from this point on, if you want to use herbicides on my field, that after this year you're going to need to find a new place to lease to grow hay because we're not going to have herbicides on my field. If you were absolutely insistent and you, there's no way out of this and you're going to make good and you're going to let this guy put something on your field, then what you need is a non-persistent weed killer um, and if you're growing hay in a grass species, it's probably atrazine. And it's going to probably ruin your field on growing anything but grass for two years. And if you start putting cattle through it at that point, don't, don't sell the manure off anywhere. Leave it right where it falls and let it go through the process over and over again for about two years. Because if you're selling any material or putting any material like that into a composting facility, you're now spreading atrazine and uh, what other, what any other chemical that you've used into compost. And some organic gardener somewhere is going to have their stuff destroyed with your chemicals from your property. This is the reality that we're facing here. This is the conundrum that we're in. But if it was my property and I had no way to do it, I would look for a non-persistent herbicide and I would say, I want you to bring me, th I'm not going to tell you what to use because I don't know. I just pulled atrazine out of my butt because it usually will not kill grass, okay, and like many of these weed killers, and as far as I know, it has about a two-year half-life. Um, they say it's six months, but it's more like two years, but a non-persistent herbicide I would get the, the I'd say, you know what? If you, if we can't come to an agreement on not doing it at all, I want you to go get me three options. And then I would deeply research those three options and I would find the one with the least persistence. And if you come back to me and if you email me with question for Jack dash herbicide, I'll know it's you and I'll give you priority. And if you give me three options, I'll give you the best one. Um, but I would just try to avoid it altogether. I, I would, honest to God, to save my property, refund this man's lease fee, unless you're going to lose your house over doing it, and say, no herbicide, no herbicide, no herbicide. And I would look for people that want to practice better practices on your land in the future. I, I know it's too late to tell them, pick your seat up and go elsewhere. But it wouldn't be too late to say, I didn't understand this when we got into this. I don't want herbicide on my field. 
if someone gets near my field with a jug of Roundup, at minimum, I'm going to climb on them and pound their face. That's how I feel about this. There will never be a speck of chemical herbicide on my property ever again for the rest of my life. When it comes to buying amendments for my property, I will not buy compost. I will not buy compost. I will not buy compost until there is a process by which I can be 100% assured that this crap won't be in my compost ever again. I will make my own, and if it takes longer, it takes longer. About the only thing that I will bring onto my property at this point are wood chips. The reason I'll do that is even if an area has been treated with an herbicide and the tree's been cut from that, there's such a small amount that can actually get into the, the, the woody components of the tree. And when you're getting wood chips, you're getting it from millions of different locations all pulled together. And we haven't had any reports, really, of people using a hardwood mulch and having these problems. It's always going to compost or garden soil that has compost as a component. At a very minimum, any place I'm going to get any kind of, if I do need to get some compost in, any place I'm going to get it from, what I'm going to do is I'm going to plant legumes directly into it, beans in a pot, and if they look funny at all, I won't use it. I mean, it's it's gotten to be an incredible problem. It's much worse than when I first started talking to you about it in the past because of like the Samilia penthlate or whatever it is, all these persistent long-term herbicides. So uh, best option, you give him his money back, you let him grow his hay with no herbicide. You tell him that's the best you can do. Um, next best option is you find the least persistent and you end this practice and never let it happen on your property again. Um If he insists on using something like Amelia Penetrate or whatever, I just tell him, here's the money, here's a check for your seed. I'm sorry, that shit's not going on my property. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious. I mean, you could say you're breaking your word, but if I wanted to come out and spread freaking um, radium, you know, radioactive material on your property, and you, I said I need to do this, do you send you lease it to me to grow? You'd be like, hell no. You're, well, if you put that kind of shit on your field. You're ruining it for decades. Don't let them put a persistent herbicide on your field. No way, no shape, no how, no form. And here's the funny thing. Hay will grow without an herbicide. It may not be as the highest quality hay that they're looking for, but actually it's pretty good stuff. Anyway, that's my answer. I know it's long for a first one, but man, do not let a persistent drop, a drop of persistent herbicide on your property. Again, some of these herbicides, especially that you can use for grass style things, um, are bad. I'm not going to say they're good, but if it's a middle ground, yeah. But get me some options and we'll try to find the one with the least persistence in it. Do it quick. I know that this is, uh, probably a hot issue. Hey, Jack. This is Kevin in West Virginia. I had a question about making a backyard pond. I live on a quarter acre lot. I'm going to have just a small pond mainly for aquatic plants and some fish. I want to know the best way to build one. Uh, you know, what's the best location? How deep should I make it? Uh, should I use a rubber liner, or is there something better you'd suggest? Any advice would be appreciated. Thanks for the show, Jack. Great question, and, and it was like a lot of things. The answer is, well, it depends. Um, uh, let's start out with how important it is to you that the pond look natural. 
Um, there's a lot of things you can do with pond liners to try to make the ponds look natural. You can dig your hole, you put your pond liner in. Basically, you've made an in-ground pool with a rubber liner. You put rocks on it. If you make the walls a certain, you know, if you make the walls instead of steep the way almost everybody does it, steep to a shelf and steep to a bottom, instead of doing that, if you make it sloping, you can, you can actually cover the liner with dirt. And that'll make it look a lot more natural, but it will always tend to sort of come back and be visible in areas. You can make it a deep, steep, walled pond. You can put rocks around it that overhang the pond and then encase them. And that'll hide the liner. But it always seems that no matter how good a job you do with that, when you stand at certain positions and look at the pond, you see the black liner, as the, especially as the level of the pond goes down. So the, the beauty of liners is that they're extremely simple to use. Uh, there's good ones from companies like uh, DuPont, et cetera, that are 25-year or better liners. Um, you get, you know, they, they're safe for fish. You can, you can eat the fish out of them, and I would eat the fish out of a line pond uh, a lot quicker than I would out of a, of a, of a you know, a cellophane-lined uh, counter at most uh most stores that are getting their tilapia from China or what have you. So um, if you wanted to put tilapia in your backyard pond, for instance, and harvest them every year, I wouldn't hesitate to do that with a line pond. But it's never really, really, really going to look natural, even if it's professionally done. So that leaves us with how could we do it and make it look really well done without a pond liner. And there's a couple ways. The easiest solution would be to bring in bentonite, the clay, and I would put it in at least two inches thick across the entire circumference of the pond. I would dig the pond, therefore everywhere that I dug would be two inches deeper than I wanted it to be. And I would put in at least two inches of bentonite. In fact, I would dig it four inches deeper than I would want to be because I would then, after I put the bentonite in, and let's assume this is not going to be a giant pond. The biggest pond is probably going to be 10 foot by 10 foot, something like that, on a, in a suburban yard, something about the size of a small bedroom. Uh, and I would go in there with a good hand tamper, and I would moisten the bentonite, and I would tamp the shit out of the bentonite. And then I would put native soil back on top of it with a tamper. And I'm just talking about it's a wood tool. You can buy them in most hardware stores. They're about 48-inch handle, and they've got a flat um, square of steel on the end of them, so you can smack them dead to the ground. Boom, 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 boom. And I would tamp native soil back down, and I would fill that, and that will seal, and it would look completely natural. It would just be this depression in the landscape that holds water. Now, location. I mean, that's, that's what I would do. Another way you could do it, if you can get a lot of green matter, um, go in and... Put down about four to six inches deep. So now you got to dig the pond about, in this case, eight inches or more deeper than you want it everywhere. And lay down a mat of at least, and I'm talking when you've, when you've pit it with the same thing, the pounder, right? You're looking at a spongy mat of compacted four to six inches of green material. So this could just be weeds and stuff, grass stuff, but it's got to be green. It can't have dried up at all. It's got to be fresh cut. Lay down about an inch of your native soil and tamp it really good and pack it in, maybe two inches, and pack it in. And what will happen is that green material, deprived of oxygen, will start to ooze and get slimy and nasty, and it's called glee. And that glee will seal. 
And then you'll have a native soil on top, and you can start planting around it, and it will look natural. Bentonite would be a much easier solution. You can go to a company that sells it and say, I'm building a pond, dimensions X and Y. This is what my soil's like. And they'll say, you need at least two inches or you need three inches, and you'll need X many bags, and you can order it, and they'll deliver it to you, and you, it's, it's done. It's, it's rock solid. It'll probably cost less than a rubber pond liner to do it. I would probably use bentonite. You want to go the all, na all natural yet route, or you just have a huge amount of green matter you can get your hands on. Um, you could do it that way. You wanted to do it totally natural. Prepare the pond site. Lay down a, a layer of good quality organic soil and compost. Okay. Plant the crap out of it with buckwheat. Once the buckwheat flowers, cut the buckwheat. Pull it aside. Okay. Put another layer of buckwheat seed down and then put the buckwheat on top of the seed that you've just cut. So leaf stubble, roots, And then spread out the buckwheat, okay, loosely. Let the, the new buckwheat crop grow up through this. This is about a five-week growth cycle, all right? Cut it again, drop it again, plant it again. Grow three cycles of buckwheat. Keep cutting it and letting it to the ground. When you get your, your third cycle in the end of your summer, put dirt on top of it, it'll glee out, and it'll seal. All right, so you could... A lot of ways you could do this, right? Green matter glee, um, a liner, or bentonite. I would go with bentonite for simplicity, green matter for 100% natural, and it's still the same look as the bentonite, and I would go with a rubber liner last. Where to locate the pond? The highest point that you can hold water that isn't an area you'd want your pond. So that when the pond overflows and all this rich, detritus matter and fish poop and everything's in there, it's easy for you to use it to... To, to fertigate your garden with your pond waste to where even if you had a very low draw pump and you did have to use power to do it, you can throw a low draw uh, submersible pump into your pond and all you got to do is pump the water up out of the pond, a couple foot of rise, and then once it's in the hose that's attached to the pump and you go downgrade to your garden, it's going to flow out that hose anyway whether that pump is on or not. It's just it's almost like a siphon action then. That's 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 the the best location. I would try to build your gardens so that when the pond overflows from a rain event, it naturally flows into there. That's, I mean, that would be the ideal situation. So your pond is upgrade of your gardens. Your gardens are downgrade. Your gardens are built on contour. Your your contour gardens have basically swale like paths in front of the garden beds that allow the water to to, to flow in between the garden beds. And when there's a rain event that overflows the pond, it just goes into there. That's that's how I would build it. A minimum size that I would look at would probably be in the neighborhood of 8 by 10 feet. And I'd like to go bigger than that. Um, if we do a little bit of calculation, an 8 foot by 10 foot oval pond with an average depth of 2 feet uh, is going to hold about 1,100 gallons. And my goal is going to be a, to get a pond to make it stable up into the 1,000-gallon realm to give you some idea of how quickly we can increase that with a little bit of extra size. You'd think that if an 8x10 gave us you know, 1,100 gallons, that going to like a 10x12, just adding two feet in both directions, might add a couple hundred gallons. It'll actually take us up to 1,795 gallons, almost 1,800 gallons. So that's significant. And as ponds go just a little bit bigger, they start to hold a lot more water because of the way geometry and uh, it's the, the circumference of circles and the radius works out. So let's say we can just pump it up 
to a 12 by 14 pond. And 12 by 14 is not that big. I mean, we're talking about something about the average secondary bedroom. A nice size bedroom in a typical suburban three bedroom house is going to be about 12 by 12 to 12 by 14 in that range, 2,500 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. Um, if you look at a 2,500 gallon tank, like a farm tank, a black farm tank people use for roof catchment, it's a pretty sizable thing and you're holding it in the ground. And this is thing about ponds is, You, you think about, you look at a room that's 12 by 14, you go, this is a pretty big room. And then you look at a 12 by 14 oval on the ground and it, it almost shrinks in the landscape. It doesn't look that big when it's outdoors anymore. So I would try to get into that 10, 8 by 10 minimum, 12 by 14 optimum level for a backyard pond, uh, with about a two foot average depth. Try to push that at least a thousand up to 2000 gallons of water. That's a significant reserve of water that you can do a lot with. Uh, you can definitely grow fish through your summers, even if you're in a climate where it's loppier or going to die in the winter. Um, you can rig up a little bit of solar water heat, extend the growing season a little bit for them, and get yourself a nice harvest every year. If you don't want to grow tilapia in the pond, you can grow koi or something like that uh, as well. Uh, but it's a hell of an asset to have. To, to give you an idea on the bentonite uh, requirement, uh, a 12-by-14-foot pond, if you wanted a 3-inch depth layer of bentonite, which is probably, for a backyard pond holding a couple thousand gallons of water, it's probably overkill. Two inches is probably more than enough. You're looking at about one and a half yards of bentonite. That's just that's just not that much. Um, if you do it a two-inch layer, you're looking at right at a cubic yard. So one cubic yard of bentonite in a 12-by-14-foot pond uh, is is just, you know, plenty for what you want to do. I'm sitting on a website now, Able Supply. I mean, just to get an idea, a cubic yard of bentonite, $37. Uh, this is this is why I would use bentonite. Th think about that, okay? So what's a 10 by 14 foot pond liner going to cost you? Well, the first thing is you're not going to need a 10 by 14 liner to do a 10 by 14 pond. Um, you're going to need about a 22 by 18 foot liner to do a 10 by 14 pond with a 12 foot, a, a two foot average depth to hold about 2000 gallons of water. And that means that you're going to spend about $400 for a plastic rubber liner with anywhere between a, a depending on whether you believe the market or not, a 10 to 25 year life cycle. Um, that's never going to look 100% natural. And you could do the same job having somebody, you know, deliver a couple cubic yards of bentonite. So let's go overkill. Let's do two cubic yards of bentonite and let's spend a whopping 70, 80 bucks. And if we have to have it delivered another 25, let's spend 120 bucks and, and do it with bentonite. That's, that's why I would go with bentonite for even a small backyard pond. Let's take another one. Jack, this is Ryan from Washington again. I'm calling to ask a question about your listener call-in procedures and the, the services that you use. I've called in a couple of times in the past, and I've been an avid listener not just to TSP, but also to Five Minutes with Jack. And I cannot find the episode where you talked about the service that you use for your uh, toll-free call-in and the messaging service and routing service that you use. So if you could please go over that again or provide links to it, it would be outstanding. Um, I love the show, and I think it's absolutely amazing what you're doing with TSP, 13 Skills, Walking to Freedom, and uh, the community that you built with uh, the Road to 100K. 
Again, thanks. Great job. Separate fly. Um, the service is called Call 8, K-A-L-L, the number 8. Um, and if you go to the show notes today and uh, today's episode, again, 1095, there'll be a link there for Call 8, 800 service. It is one of the coolest things I've ever found technology-wise, and it seems like something new and cutting-edge, but I've been using it since 1998 uh, for various business applications. It still works the same way it always did. It still has the same rate. Which is cheap. I think a basic number, just if you just pick whatever number they'll give you out of a list, is a dollar a month plus six cents a minute for incoming calls. If um, you want a vanity, you know, then you can pick like from a list of like premium numbers for like five bucks, and you can get vanity numbers that are anywhere between ten and twenty dollars, and some really expensive ones too. Um, for instance, eight six six sixty five. Think I think the base charge on that for me is ten bucks a month, and then six cents a minute for incoming calls. Now. If it was just an 800 number, it would be pretty great for what it does. Because when you buy the number, you set it up, you say, here's my number, here's where I want it to forward to, and you hit click. And then, like, if you pick a phone up that second, dial that number, it'll ring through. It's that fast. Um, but then you can go into your account, and you can set it to, to run a voicemail. And you record a message like you'll hear if you dial my number. And then you set up a email address. And then when somebody calls and leaves you a message, it will email the .wav file to you wherever you are. So now you have a high-quality uh, uh, audio, as long as the phone was a good-quality phone, that can reach you anywhere in the world for your voicemail, which means if you're running a business with it and you want to save all your, your inbound voicemails and maybe put them in a file attached to the customer so you can review them or use them to dispute things in the future, like, I called and said, and you're like, no, you didn't, you called and said this. Well, no, I let me forward you your own message back. So from a legal liability standpoint, it's cool. And they can't bitch about the call being recorded because they left it as a recording. You got it? Um, but it gets even cooler than that. If somebody wants to send you a fax, just give them your 800 number, and as soon as a fax machine hits it, uh, Call 8 knows it's a fax. We'll let it be received as a fax like e-fax, and you'll get it in an email to the same email address with a PDF. But let's say you don't want it to go to voicemail. Let's say you want it to ring to your cell phone, but you only want it to ring to your cell phone between the hours of 8 o'clock and 5 o'clock, and at all other times you want it to go to your voicemail service inside Call 8. Well, you can set it to do that. Let's say that you had a sales force. This is kind of getting entrepreneurial here, but let's say you had a sales force. And let's say you had the United States divided up into four territories. And you wanted, when somebody called the sales number, for that, that person, if they were calling in Nebraska, to get the Nebraska sales office. And even if it's just some guy that lives in that region that has an office in his, his house or it rings to his cell phone, you could say, all calls originating from this group of states go to this number, from this group of states go to that number, from this group of states go to this number, from this group of states go to that number. You can do that by area code. You can do that by phone prefix. You can block specific calls. You can forward specific calls to specific locations. So once you had a customer that was calling you from a specific phone number, if you wanted them always to reach a certain person, you could go into your account and say, whenever this person calls the 800 number, forward their number there. This, for small business people like myself, especially in the public eye that people want to screw with, is quite useful for turning the screw E into the screw er. 
So, for instance, I had one guy that thought, I know what I'll do to Jack. I'll call him up and call him a filthy piece of shit and all kinds of other vulgarities that even he won't use on the air. I will leave him rants and raves and tell him how, how bad of a horrible human being he is. And I'll do that every day until he gets tired of it and has to shut his number down because, you know, he's just a douche and I don't like him. And maybe I'll call him four or five times in a row some night when I'm drunk and do the same thing and run up his 800 charges. Well, see, the problem for him was when he did that to me, the first time I got a message from him, I'm like, you won't be doing that anymore. I found a couple more messages from him, and then I forwarded the 800 number from his number to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Yep, that way anytime he called me, he actually contacted the Washington office of the FBI. Uh, and the nonsense stopped. I had another idiot do this to me, and he wasn't quite as bad, so I played with him a little bit differently. I forwarded his calls to himself. So when he called my 800 number, he got his own voicemail. And the nonsense stopped. Um, if it not, I can also set it so that if you call from a specific number that you'll get a disconnected message. Or that the phone will just ring and ring and ring forever and you'll never get an answer. Uh, or I can set it to where you just don't hear anything at all. That's pretty incredible what this can do. You can also run recorded conference calls with it. So if you had to on the fly have four people call that number um, and wanted to record it, you could do that. It's pretty powerful. Now, this is all entrepreneurial, but it does seem like, you know, are there any emergency things you could do with it? Well, what if every family had one of these 800 numbers and it always rung to a certain phone, you know, at least then if somebody ended up in jail and, you know, making collect calls from jail, you could, you know, get through without doing that because you got a toll-free number because sometimes people end up in jail that didn't do anything wrong or they end up in jail and they did something wrong but it's not that bad it's not like you're now not going to want you know and then even you know family members that have really ended up in jail for the right reasons to be in jail generally you still want to help them out so that it could be used if someone got anywhere where they couldn't get through because of call issues right so um, with cell phones everywhere, this is less of a concern than it was back in 98 when I started using this service. But, you know, having an 800 number that always reaches dad is not a bad thing when you have kids away at college and might end up in a bad situation and they can pick up a phone anywhere and they know they can get through to you. Uh, that's maybe one way that this could be used. Um, since it's a voicemail service as well, If you had it, you could set it to voicemail and anybody could reach you from anywhere during an emergency and you could change your voice message so that it would tell them your latest status, where you're at, and when you'll be able to respond. I guess you could do that with cell phone voicemail, but you could access email a lot of times when you can't access your cell phone, so at least you could hear the messages that were coming in. You can set it so that the voice messages go to more than one email, like a broadcast. So if a family member called and left a message because of an emergency, it could go to mom and dad, not just mom or dad. And the reason that's important is one of the people that's having a problem might be mom or dad. It could go to mom, dad, brother, sister, cousin Harry, etc. You can do that. It's pretty freaking phenomenal. But the best use for it is, as a small business person, it makes you look like you're a bigger business than you are. You can have your Vanity 800 number. You can be reached when you want to. It can go elsewhere when you don't want it to. You can route call. It is 
Very, very cool. Again, call 8, K-A-L-L, the number 8, is the name of the service. I do actually sell this as one of the few things I still do from my telecom days as an affiliate. If you're interested in it, I would really appreciate it if you were going to sign up for the service, that you would go to the survivalpodcast.com to today's show notes and click on it, since I'm the one that told you about it, and I can make the 50 cents a month or so in commission off of it. Uh, I don't get a lot of money out of the, the telecom stuff. I stopped doing that seven, eight years ago, but it's still there and some sites are still out there. So, um, it's probably the most valuable service from the days that I did telecom online. Uh, it's why I still use it today. And, um, I think if you have any use for an 800 number, it's probably the best service you can get. Is it the absolute cheapest way to do it? No, but it's damn cheap guys with all the calls that come in. My bill's like 30 bucks a month and I have a vanity number. Um, for the average person, it's 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 really going to be very, very affordable. Uh, let's take an... Oh, one more thing. If you have a cheap mother-in-law or father-in-law or somebody like that that always says, well, I would call and talk to the kids, but it costs a lot of money for the long distance. You're like... Grandma, switch off of AT&T. It's not, I can't, I'm keeping AT&T. Well, even they would give you five cents a minute if you, nah, I want my service to work. And you just, you'll get a cell phone. I don't believe in those things. You got that kind of thing. What you do is you set up an 800 number and you say, Grandma, you can call this 800 number toll free and you can always reach the kids and you pay the six cents a minute and Grandma's happy, the kids are happy and they talk to each other more. I'm sure you can think of other ways to use it. If you can think of another way to use a service like this, Specifically for emergency use, why don't you comment today's show notes? Let's take another call. Yeah, hi, Jack. This is uh, Joe from uh, Lindenhurst, Long Island, New York. Uh, I was calling up. My question is that I am trying to determine if I should cut down my trimmings from the prior year from, say, my tomatoes and leave that in the ground or on top of the ground and cover it with new dirt for the uh, this season's growth, or am I supposed to remove those and throw that in, a, uh, you know, remove the uh, trimmings and all the old dead plants from the prior year before I plant for this year? I do square foot gardening because I have a small lot in uh, suburbia, so I'm just trying to find out uh, how I should prepare my uh, soil for uh, this year's growth. Uh, great job. And it, one of the questions I had was, if you can tell me the name of the guy who's out on Long Island, uh, the prepper, uh, so I can look him up on the uh, website. I know you've heard somebody calling from Long Island, New York before, and I wasn't sure of his name. Again, uh, thank you very much. You do a great show. Have a great day. Let's start out with, I think, who you're talking about out on Long Island. I think you're talking about Mike Prutney, known as the Backyard Pioneer, who we had on and described his experiences during Hurricane Sandy. Again, his website is The Backyard Pioneer, and uh, it's TheBackyardPioneer.com. I think that's the guy you're talking about. And if I didn't do that in the beginning, I guarantee you by the time I got to the end of answering your other question... I would have forgotten about it, so I did it up front to try to prevent that from happening. Um, now, the issue with using garden clippings and whether just to throw them on to the surface of the garden and let nature take its course or to compost them in a composting situation, it is another one of those. Well, it depends. Let's say you had some blight on your tomatoes. If I had blight on my tomatoes this year, then I would not just cut them off at the ground level. I would pull them out of the ground 
And I would completely get rid of that. I would take that away, and if anything, maybe I'd throw it under a bush somewhere on the other side of the yard, but I would probably stick that in a garbage bag and send it off to uh, the dump. And it'll be one of the few things at the dump that's not actually going to hurt anything, but I wouldn't want to propagate blight. If I had powdery mildew on my squash, I would probably do the same thing, or possibly I would burn them in a bonfire or something like that. I might compost them if I got them all chopped up and had a really big, you know, cubic meter or more compost where I know I'm going to hit that 160 degree mark at the center. But I would probably, with any kind of persistent, uh, uh, pest type of situation, get rid of it. If I had big, giant, healthy tomatoes this year and I didn't see any blight or any problems with it, I would probably cut them off at the root system. I'd take my snips and I'd snip them up in little pieces. I mean, you know, six, eight inch pieces. And I would pull back my mulch in my square foot garden and I would throw it down there and I'd push the mulch back on it and I'd say, here you go, worms, have fun. Um, so that would be the issue uh, there. And one of the places to be real careful, actually three plants to be real careful with doing that though, and one you mentioned is tomatoes. The other is potatoes because of the blight, and the third one I gave you is squash because of powdery mildew. Those things, even in your climate, can often kind of hold over. And if you have any of those conditions, I would uproot the sucker and get rid of it. Specifically, tomato blight. Um, blight can be exasperated when water splashed on leaves and things like that, but the real way that blight gets into a tomato or a potato is through the root system. It's a soil-borne fungus that goes into, and this is why when you see tomatoes die from blight, that you see this brown yellowing, and it's just, you're thinking, ah, it's just the lower branches, and blight's not getting through down there, and a couple of the, the leaves are turning brown, and it's not a big deal, and sometimes that happens, and then, It goes up, and it's like a cancer, and it eats the plant from the bottom up. That's why it happens that way. That's why you never see blight start on the top of a tomato plant. It always comes up from the bottom and destroys from within like a cancer. Um, and because of that, I want the roots out of the ground. I want, I want, and I, you know, I might even, the area the tomatoes were in in a nice cold climate like yours, I might even pull the mulch back for the first hard freeze and let that ground freeze, kill that stuff, because freezing tends to to shut that down pretty good and kill it pretty good. Um, so that would be the approach that I would take with those. But everything else I would just cut up and lay to the ground. And, uh, I, again, I would probably not lay it on top of my mulch unless your mulch had maybe, like you know that your mulch is kind of worn down that year and you're probably going to come back and lay more mulch on top of it and plant in. that. Then maybe you just lay it on top. I still say it makes sense if you have a mulch layer. When you're ready to do this, kind of put your garden to bed for a while, right? Pull that mulch back and take that, or, that, that vegetative matter and put it in contact with the soil so that the soil, the, the, the good funguses and the good life and the bugs that are good bugs and the little microbes that are good microbes and, and all can feed on it. Get it in, get it down under there and throw that carpet of mulch back on top of it. So in 90% of the situations, I'm going to put everything right to the bed. Um, or I'm going to compost it. But in any situation with a, a, a persistent disease problem, I'm going to remove it. I'm going to get rid of it all together. Um, I'm probably not even going to compost it. I'm either burning it or it's going off-site. Because um, I don't want it. And again, the things are blight and powdery mildew are not the only ones, but two of the worst offenders. Uh, let's take another call. 
Hi, Jack. This is Derek. I am calling to pretty much just say thank you. The last year has been really crazy with us. Um, I have been prepping for only a couple of years now, and in that short period of time, I was actually able to bring my mother-in-law into my house, lose my job, my wife lose her job, move to a new state, and set everything up in less than nine months, and only have to go to the store to pretty much buy fresh food for the last nine months. Also in that time frame, we had our first daughter. So I just really want to say thank you for everything that you've done in opening my eyes to the craziness of this world that we live in, man. Thanks a lot. Bye. I'd say more thank you for sharing that because I keep trying to say it over and over and over, and some people just don't seem to get it, even people that are prepping. You have to start prepping from the standpoint of what do I need to do to ensure my life if the shit hits the fan for me and my family, even if it affects no one else in the world, how do I take care of myself and my family first so that I can be a good member of a community as a whole and continue to be prosperous? That's where it starts, because when you get into that state, you are ready for a lot of the other long-term things that can go wrong. But if you just start out prepping for the apocalypse, for the economic collapse, for the pandemic, for the solar flare, for the EMP attack, for the what, fill in the blank then you always leave yourself vulnerable because you convince yourself, oh, that's boring, that's mundane, that doesn't matter, I'll be fine, it won't matter anymore, I won't have to pay a mortgage because the economy will collapse anyway and the banks will be under. See, it doesn't work that way. You think about what this guy had to go through. You lose two jobs, not one. Uh, you got your mother-in-law, for one reason or another, needs to be housed with you. You have to move to another state. And you have to basically live off of what you have for nine months with very little inputs from outside. And if I describe that to people, when I say, well, imagine if you lost your job and your wife lost your job and you had a family member you had to take in. You know what a lot of people say? Well, I'll never get that bad. Well, it did for this guy. And prepping paid off. So, sir, thank you for being prepared. And thank you for sharing the fact that it paid off for you. And thank you for being a stand-up man that took care of your family during this period of time, including bringing in an additional family member. Living with a mother-in-law, no matter how good you get along, can't be easy. I know it would have been hard for me. And I, my mother-in-law, God rest her soul, is gone years ago. And I loved her. I thought she was a wonderful woman. But I cannot see. And, you know, my father-in-law, he's a great guy, but I can't see him living in my house. I mean, I would do it if it was necessary, but... Man, it's, it's, it's tough to do that thing when you've been on your own for a long time. It takes sacrifice. And if you're doing it in the best of times, it can be difficult. But to do it at a time when everybody's stressed out, everybody's wondering when, you know, dad's going to find a job, mom's going to find a job. Then everybody has to go through a move together and you're still trying to get back on your feet without being prepared on some level. How would you ever do it? And the answer is, you would figure a way out because everybody does. 
but you would be a hell of a lot less likely to make it out the other side still as a family. And that's one of the things we have to understand about prepping. It's not just so that we will survive as in, you know, follow the first rule of survival. First rule of survival is to be able to wake up breathing tomorrow. If you don't wake up breathing tomorrow, you're dead. You failed. You get an F. In fact, when I was in school, I don't know how many people had this. We had weighted Fs. And you get an F if you're a basic failure, and you got an F1 if you failed pretty bad. And the worst you could get was an F3. And F3 was like 0 to 16% or something like that, and it brought your GPA down further. Like an F was a 0, but an F3 was a minus 3 against your GPA. So if you had an F3 and, 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 and an A in a two-semester se two course, you could end up failing it. <laughs> All right? So that's just, you know... An example of when you fail the first rule, you get an F3. But, you know, you can get a, an F1, which is, you know, you're alive, they're alive, but nobody's together or happy anymore. And you don't want an F1 either. And so our, our, our first level is to not just make sure that we survive, as in be alive tomorrow, but that we're able to thrive on some level, that if we lose everything that we're able to rebuild, and most importantly, that who we call our family is still who we call our family when we come out the other side. So thank you for being an example of that, and thank you for sharing your stories, and I wish you well, and I hope you have better things in 2013. Let's take another call. Can you elaborate more on... Filing a Schedule F and how to um, get the 1099 version, I guess, of a Schedule F for establishing a, uh, a history uh, for farming to make it easier to, you know, purchase farmland. The reason I ask this question is uh, I recently got registered with the FSA. I have a farm number, a track number. I'm going through um, the NRCS and the USDA to put in a seasonal high tunnel and some other things, and I'm trying to lay the groundwork to move on to a large operation. It was a small comment a few shows back. I'd like to know if you can elaborate on that and elaborate on the name of the person um, who you got that information from, so I can try and find a little bit more about it. I'm having trouble figuring out that process. Thank you. Okay, um, I am not a person who farms for profit or even to fail to make a profit but establish a, a farming operation. It's something I may do someday, but right now it's not my business, and I don't have any expertise in it. Let me give you the overview. Let me tell you how you find one of these things. It's real easy. You go and you search for IRS Schedule F, and you can find it. And basically, a Schedule F simply allows you to put down farm expenses and farm income. So as long as you're conducting any activity uh, that's agriculturally based, um, you can report it as income and you can report the expenses against it and the IRS will gladly accept your, your, your tax dollars. Or you can basically fail to make a profit and still report the income and the expense and have it actually be a small loss. Um, now, the... Technicalities, how much does there need to be? Does the land have to be zoned agricultural, etc.? I don't know that. You're going to have to talk to a tax person that has familiarity with that tax law. If there is a person out there that is an attorney, a tax attorney that deals with this or a CPA that routinely deals with filing farm uh, uh, paperwork for the IRS, I would love to have you on. Where I learned about this, and the guy you're talking about, 
is named Mark Shepard. He has a permaculture farm, I think Wisconsin or something like that. I'll put a link to a little bio on him today. I don't even know if he has his own site or not. I haven't been able to find it. Um, yeah, I think actually there is a website, New Forest Farm. Let me see if that is. Yep, New Forest Farm seems to be his website. I'll put a link to that in the show notes today for you as well. You can see he's designed extensively on contour. Um, he's practicing what you would call agroforestry. And he, like many other farmers in the permaculture and in the organic world, uh, is a participant in woofing, which is worldwide opportunities on uh, organic farms. And you can find lots of places there where you can sign up and go be an intern and go basically work for nothing and get maybe get your housing, which might be a place in a barn, and uh, maybe get meals and maybe some places provide a small stipend, 50 bucks a week or whatever, and go learn how to farm. And his statement in this article in Acres USA was the magazine. I don't remember what episode this was particularly featured in in Acres, but it was in the last six months. Uh, was on how he you know runs his farm and what he does with his interns. And when an intern comes to his farm, he basically says, you're going to be leasing, quote, unquote, you know, air quote, leasing uh, 10 acres of my farm for me as a farm-to-farm transaction. And you'll be working here, and you'll earn profit, and you'll pay, and everything will kind of work out to where you'll make a couple bucks, but that'll be it. Basically, you're, you're my intern, but we're going to have this farm-to-farm transaction, and you might intern with me for two years. And at the end of that two years, not only will you know how to farm and market and all the other stuff, but you will have established two years of consecutive farming for profit so that when you go to get a loan, you'll be able to get a loan because they'll say, where are your tax records? And you'll go here and they'll say, where's your, where's your portion of your taxes dedicated to farm income? And you'll say, here's my schedule F from 2012 and 2013. See, I'm a farmer. I have experience. I've, you know, here's my profit and loss. Here's how much land I was managing. This was establishing myself, and you are, are a, more better able to get financing and loans in the agricultural loan community. All right. So that's that's all I know. I don't really know any more than that. Um, and again, I don't see why you couldn't have a small agricultural concern on a small property and do things like pick your own. Uh, do things like have a greenhouse and sell plants to the public, uh, record all your expenses, keep all your records and, you know, even make a little bit of money and have cash flow and show that and pay taxes on it or not, or only pay a little bit of taxes on it, depending on how much expense you have and what you can be creative about expensing and things like that. But in the end of a, a couple of year period, have a track record of at least having an agricultural background and be better able to say, now I want to expand my operation. Right. Um, but again, this is something you got to talk to a CPA about or what have you. The main reason I mentioned it is because I know we have farmers uh, that listen to this show, farmers and ranchers and larger scale permaculturists that use interns. And I think that that's what you need to be doing so that your interns are getting real value out of it. How you directly apply it at a personal level, it's beyond me because I don't I don't do that. Um, but again, if we have a CPA that could discuss this, and this is one of those things, maybe this is a 15-minute mini-segment. Maybe it's not an hour-long deal. Uh, as far as Mr. Shepard and getting him on the show, I've sent multiple emails to him. I've never heard back. I think he's not interested in being on a survival show. He probably has no idea. If any of you know him or talk to him, tell him to get in touch with us. We'd love to feature him. Um, and we are quite friendly to the permaculture world. 
If Jeff Lawton thinks we're cool, uh, if Bill Wilson thinks that we're cool, if Ben Falk thinks that we're cool, we're all right when it comes, if Paul Wheaton thinks we're cool. Oh, one more thing. There's actually, I found for you that may be useful, a pretty good discussion on the Permies forum with it. It's not a long one, but a little bit of information, um, and some resources, uh, getting into the financial side at the Permies.com forum from our own beloved Paul Wheaton. So I'll include that in the show notes as well. Let's go ahead and take another call. Oh, additionally, before I go into the next thing though, I, I realized there was a question in the question at the very beginning. Um, that I, I maybe didn't hear and pick up on that I need to elaborate on real, real quick before we move on. Um, the caller said, how can I get the 1099 version of a Schedule F? And the answer is you don't. You create it through yourself with record keeping. A 1099 is, let's say you work for me as a contractor, and um, I give you a 1099. And that says that you worked for me for X hours as an independent contractor and I paid you Y dollars last year. And now I send a copy of that with your social security number to the IRS to account for my expense to you as a non-employee contract worker. I don't think you would file that under a Schedule F in, in it because you're not I, – I, that's another gray area because let's say – You were running a tractor for me as a, as a contractor on my farm and I was paying you a wage. That not real, that's not really you running a farm. I don't think that would be Schedule F income. I think that would be straight up independent contractor income. It's just agriculturally based. It's not farm operations. If I hired you as a farm manager, and paid you a wage, you'd probably be on a W-2, and I don't think that puts you into the realm we're talking about either. From my understanding, a Schedule F is a lot like a Schedule C for farmers. So a Schedule C is something I fill out every year. My business has certain operational expenses and things like I'm a business owner. If I were a business owner and my income was agricultural or I had an agricultural segment, that would go on the Schedule F. So my cost of web servers every year goes on my Schedule C, right? If you had a farm and you had a certain cost of fuel for your tractor, that would go on your Schedule F. So it's not a 1099. It's expense record keeping. It's farm transactions. It's things like that. Let's go ahead and take the next call now. Hey, Jack. 229 Mick from the MSB here. Uh I had a question, something I was considering the other day. Um, in my area, at least, I'm not sure if this is uh, nationwide, we have a lot of these uh, over 60, over 50, over 65 kind of uh, communities. And a lot of them are large apartment, apartment complexes, gated, they have several buildings, they're all connected, things like that. Everything self-contained, have restaurants, have you know, different facilities in them. It occurred to me that in 20, 25 years or so, we're not going to have millions and millions or however many, um, you know, baby boomer, uh, over 60 people as, you know, sadly they start to die off. We won't have this huge boom of an over 60 community. Uh, and I'm wondering what you think, uh, will become of those. Um, I have a couple of different ideas, you know, whether it becomes government housing or something like that. And, And certainly then the dynamic would change of, of the locations that those are in. But I um, thought it might be interesting to hear your thoughts on that. So I look forward to hearing it. Thanks. 
Well, it's an interesting question, and I think the answer is going to surprise you. My answer is going to be that there may be more of them, not less of them, and they may not be converted to anything because I think there's a misconception that the boomers are the end. Like, then it's going to start to drop off. And a little bit, but not really. Population growth continued aggressively after the baby boomer generation through the 70s and into the 80s, and we really didn't start to moderate population growth at all, uh, even with the you know the less immigrants argument. So if we, what's the population growth of the United States? If we had no immigration, it's flat to down at this point due to lower birth rates and more people not having children and things like that. That Even that moderation, the less immigrants version, didn't start until really heavily in the 90s. The population of people over 65 is expected to grow at a steep curve all the way out to 2030, and then that curve is projected to moderate but continue, and there's expected to be a population of more than 82 million seniors over 65 uh, by 2050. So we're looking 30 seven years out right now with continued growth in the senior population. The problem is not going to be, well, all the old people are going to die and there'll be less of them. It's going to be some of the old people are going to die and there'll be less of them. And more and more of us are going to become the old people and the real what's called demographic bomb of less young people to support the aging population Most of us that are in the prime of our working lives, 35 to 45, we're going to be that burden. We're going to be the, the people that are there now. They're not the burden. And that's why you got to be like, we've had some discussions about this in the comments of the thread. And, oh, the generation is stealing from the young. And uh, No, you're going to be the generation blamed for stealing from the young if you're in your 40s and 50s right now. It's going to be you. You're going to be that 65. If you're 40 right now, like I am, then you're going to be 65. When am I going to be 65? This is kind of scary to look at. Well, it would be 2033. 2033. Um, and when I cross into the 65 realm, there'll be about 75 million of us then. And many of you will be crossing that bridge with me. And those of you that are, you know... Five years younger, you're going to be almost right around the 2040 that you're going to hit that. And those of you that are 10 years younger, you're going to be hitting this right at this 2050 timeline. And it, you folks that are in that 30-something, late 20s right now that are starting to get that, that vibe, like, man, I mean, there's like one of us for every two old people. <laughs> You might have like, you know, a half a person supporting you if things go the way they might go over the next 20 or 30 years. So what I think is going to happen to those facilities is won't be that there's not enough older folks to live in them. It will be, are they going to be able to afford to live in them? And then what happens to them? So in the spirit of your question, I don't know. Um, it's very possible that they become Section 8 housing with the government as long as the government can fund that. And from there, I don't know. I, I really don't know what happens if not the population isn't there to support them, but the funding to keep that population within them isn't there. What do you do with them then? Who knows? Maybe they turn them into prisons for uh, minimum offenders. I don't know. 
But I do want to point out that this concept that the baby boomers are going to last 20 years and that's going to be it, and then there's going to be this lower population of elderly is a myth. The problem is exactly the opposite. They're going to race the population up, and then those of us in, in, in the, the tweener generation and the Generation X, when population rates were still growing pretty abruptly, people were still having two, three children and a lot more regularity than they are today, Gen X, the tweeners, even the, the, the beginning of Gen Y, we're going to be the bigger bubble. Because not only will there be more of us, but there'll be less of them. So be careful when you start talking about one generation robbing another for Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Because those of you that are in your 30s and 40s, you're 20, 30 years from being that generation. And you'll say, but I put mine in, and you're going to be saying the same thing those folks are now. Because the new people, when the money's deflated, even inflated, inflated, inflated even more, are going to be going, that jerk! That jerk only put in like 15 grand a year. Look at what I'm putting in. I'm putting in 150 grand a year to support him. Be careful. Be careful how you think, folks. Um, sorry I don't have a better answer for what we'll do with them because my belief is we're going to have extensive need for housing for older people for another 30 years and, and then some. The thing will be can we service the, the need? That's the bigger question. Hey, Jack. How you doing, sir? Um, I just had a big question for you that I hope you can settle and also share with the rest of the lo uh, our fellow podcasters. Um, my question is about race, racial prejudice, racism, and, uh, and self-sufficiency. So um, the question is simply this. Have you ever thought about racial prejudice um, and the preparedness in living life uh, regarding geographical locations? And uh, if so or if not, how would you suggest that a minority prepper or a survivalist or anyone involved in wanting to be a homesteader or a self living in a self-sufficient area and the community approach um, choosing the right areas to live in uh, that are safe for that, that minority and their family um, so that they can maximize their freedom uh, in those areas, but also... Uh, protect themselves from uh, racial hostility regarding the local community, if there may be one. Um, so just to give you a little background on my question so that you won't think it's coming, you know, out of the extreme, uh, and I'll speak for myself and also speak for fellow minorities, a lot of us minorities, particularly ones who are, are raised in urban areas, uh, in a city or right on the outside in the suburbs, we were raised and uh, told that you should be really, really fearful or at least careful about trekking out into um, the country areas where the population was predominantly white uh, or rural areas uh, of, of the same uh, ilk and, um, and, uh, and venturing out there because you may encounter hostilities and you won't have a hell of a lot of uh, minorities there that, are, that also represent that population. And so in some of these pockets and small areas in the United States, we all know that you still have a lot of bigotry, a lot of racism, a lot of, um, and a lot of hatred towards minorities. And as preppers, uh, all of us want to, our goal is to prepare uh, for the worst and live for the best, but also to make sure that we're thinking and moving strategically 
so that we are in the best situation possible in everyday life and also when, you know, things don't go so well. And so just to give you some information, uh, because it's not uh, always quite obvious where a person should live, I've tried to look this up on my own. Texas, uh, regarding population statistics, uh, demographics, has a population that's 11.9% African American. Um, but Mississippi has a, a African American population that is uh, 37.3. So you can see the big difference in the uh, minority population from one state to the next. However, Mississippi is well known, from what I've read online, for having ex- much, much, much more extreme uh, racial issues that arise in that state. And so it, there's not really a, a clear or easy answer that I've been able to find about how can I go about making sure that the community that I want to live in, in that area that suits me, um, that is good for farming, good for living, has, has uh, you know, uh, all of the resources that I want for the property that I want to purchase, but it's also not an area in which once I move there, I'm going to unknowingly have stepped into a very, very, very racial and hostile community that may have been pocketed somewhere, and obviously this wouldn't be broadcasted for me to know about. So I appreciate it if you could give us any best advice you got on that or if anyone else you know has thought about this a little bit more who could offer some of that advice. Um, You do a great job at what you do, so please uh, answer this if you can. Thank you. Okay, fabulous question. Let me tell you the first thing it made me do. Take a big, deep breath and think. Take my glasses off. Pause everything and go get myself a nice steaming hot cup of coffee while I ponder how to answer this. Because there's a lot of things going on here. First, what we have to admit if we're going to tackle this issue as preppers or as Americans or as people is that racism exists in this country and it's not white people against black people only. It's also black people against white people. It's Hispanics against whites. It's whites against Hispanics. It's a a very divisive issue, and there are pockets of it. And some are geographic, but I'll tell you that the biggest pocket of racism in this country is age-related. That if you talk to a person when they're around people that they think are open to what they have to say, you will generally hear more racism the older a person is and less the younger. There are exceptions to the rules. There are 18-year-old white skinhead jackass jerks, and there are, you know, there are 18-year-old black thugs that hate white people. But in general, this is an aging problem to a degree. It is nowhere near as geographic or centric to the South as you would be led to believe, though Mississippi has its history. And it got a lot of publicity for its history. And we're going to get to some of who the real enemy here is in a minute. And as you might think, it's probably not who we generally blame for the problem. But there's someone agitating the problem out there that's not either based on whether what color they are, but that what's in, in it for them that we stay divided. Most of you probably know who I'm talking about by now. Anyway, um, I have to tell you flat out, that when I came to Texas from from Pennsylvania, I saw a hell of a lot raci- less racism in Texas than I did in Pennsylvania growing up. I'll admit it, I've said it before, I grew up in a family that was pretty racist. 
Um, racist is a, racism, we also have to accept if we're going to tackle this problem, is not a human condition but a learned behavior. And I can prove that because if we take a little black child of a year of age, a little white child of a year of age, or a little Hispanic child of a year of age, and a little Asian child of a year of age, and we put them all together in a group and we raise them together, uh, they won't hate each other. They'll just take each other as siblings and they'll all be happy and everybody will get along as well as any four siblings ever would. But if I take a white child and raise him in a family that teaches him that black children are bad, he'll be racist toward black children. It's a learned behavior. And that is part of the problem. So that is why you see it decline through the generations is children are more and more apt to speak to each other, to meet people of other races, to interact with them online, to have long-term interactions with another person who they really like and then find out, hey, that person's Hispanic or that person's black or that person's white. And I didn't think I'd get along with a white guy because my dad always told me that white people didn't like black people. Okay, So that's part of the evolution as the problem begins to heal itself. You'll also find it far less prevalent in other nations than it is in America due to some of our history. And there's nations where you'll find it more of a problem like South Africa. Um, so we kind of have to be honest about all of those dynamics. Then to understand another man, you must put yourself into his shoes. So when I hear a black person say, you know, we were told to stay out of white areas, and especially rural white areas, because we could end up hurt, I think, what? What? Then I have to say, okay, how, Jack, how do you feel, even today, about going into a very urban, very, very black neighborhood and just walking around? And I got to admit, it's intimidating. It's something I don't think I should do. And then we have to examine the real dynamic at play. Some of it is that learned behavior of racism, but there's another human dynamic at play. And that is that we as humans immediately pick up on anything that doesn't seem right. So if I live in a small town of a hundred people and we're all white and I see this group of white people kind of all standing around together in a group on the street, and I've never seen a single one of them before, I'm immediately suspicious. Even though we're all white, because they don't fit in. But I may very easily drive my little car down my 100-person uh, population little town and kind of not really pay attention and drive right by them and not realize that they don't fit in. That they're, and they're not even fit in, that they're just not, it's just not normal that they would be there. For all I know, there were a group of people that were on their way to Disneyland in a caravan and they all got out together to stretch their legs and stop by the local store and pick some stuff up on the way. It does, you know, I don't really know. And I don't really pay attention because they don't stand out. If I'm in a town where everybody's white and I drive past that same group of people, it's not so much that they're black, but that I immediately know They're not from here. This is not normal. I usually don't see this. And that natural innate suspicion of somebody's in my community that's relatively small and they don't belong there. And it works. The important thing for people that are black to go, yo, man, that's racist. It works the other way. If you have kind of a tight urban neighborhood 
and you go walking through it and you and you're in a urban black predominantly black population neighborhood and you see two or three other people standing around on the street across the street that are black you might walk right past them even though they're not from around there but if you really looked at them and realized hey these guys this I don't I don't know who these people are And plus that urban neighborhood probably has a higher population density. They're less likely to... But if you really knew, like, there was something about them, that, like, these guys don't... So, if me and two or three of my white buddies are standing there, you're going to do the same thing. And we have the same feelings of apprehension because we know that we stand out like a sore thumb as outsiders. This is the same way I felt when I walked through towns and cities in Honduras with blonde hair and blue eyes. It's clear you're not from here, so you attract attention. Now, that means that I could walk through a, a black urban neighborhood where 99% of the people would never do me harm, and 1-2% of the population is going to be scum because 1-2% of the population of Catholic priests are scum. 1-2% of the population of teachers are scum. 1-2% of the population of any group of people are generally scum. There's a, there's a scum threshold. And it, usually there's about 10% of a total population that are somewhere in it. But the top 1-2% of scum are the really dangerous scum that will behave like scum even when there's law and order about as soon as they think they can get away with it. So that 1-2% of scum, whether they're, they're hick, ignorant, belligerent, asshole, racist rednecks that should probably be beaten with canes into the ocean and left to drown, or whether they're black drug dealers that are equally racist in the other direction, when they see a person that doesn't belong there, they're more likely to victimize them because they're more likely in their mind to get away with it because ain't nobody going to say nothing about no, no white guy disappearing over here or We know we're with our own kind over here, and no one gonna care about that. All right? There's that stereotype on both ends, and that's a stereotype that actually exists. And we we need to be honest with that on both sides. If we're not, we can't get past it because we'll just say the problem isn't really there. That problem is there, and it should be dealt with individually, not collectively. And what I mean with, by that is, I'm a Star Trek fan. And there's been numerous instances, and, and understand Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry are one of the things that brought this to mind at a time when it wasn't really well accepted in a lot of places and started doing things that, that brought these questions up and, and many other questions up about people that looked different, people that acted different, people that had different customs. And in, in all of the, 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 the permutations of Star Trek, Next Generation, the original, whatever, there's been times where you've got two basic sides ready to shoot at each other. And one side has to say, you trust us. And the other side says, trust us. And say, I don't want to trust you. you and, and one side has to say, you know what? We're lowering our weapons. We're lowering our shields. We're going we're gonna to even be vulnerable here. And we're going to show you we're no threat to you. And only when that happens does the other side drop. And then only then can diplomacy take over. And there's a lot of that in racism in this country that needs to happen. And people say, oh, we got a black president. There's no racism. There's a lot of racism on both sides. And we need to get by it. 
And if you say there's no racism, then whatever color you are, pick a place where nobody's that nobody of that color lives and take a walk through there and see if you don't feel a little bit threatened or intimidated. So this is my whole point in the beginning of this. And this is a long answer because, God, this is a tough question, right, is that that problem exists um, in the, the interest of telling you where I come from on it. I remember that I had about four black kids in my entire high school from, you know, The, you know, you're looking at eight years of kids because you're a freshman. You know, you got a senior class ahead of you. By the time you're a senior, you have uh, a freshman class behind you. So you're looking at, you know, four or five black kids in my high school through that whole eight years. So that's how white. And there was no Hispanics in this area. I grew up in Pottsville. And one of the guys that was a black kid that was, I think he was a year behind me named Robert. Uh, and I became friends. And one time there were a bunch of my friends, including Robert, that came by my grandparents' home. We weren't even there for very long. It was just kind of like we stopped by. I think I had to pick something up, and by now I'm driving, and we're going to take my car and go. And my grandmother told me she was ashamed to show her face in town because an N had been in our home. Okay, and you know what N means, right? And that the home was over 120 years old, and that had never happened before, and I brought disgrace to the family. That's how deep it goes on my side. Um, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, before we moved to Pennsylvania for my high school years, and went to grade school and kindergarten there. And I did that at a time that there was a lot of the whole cracker thing going on from the, the black side of town. Busing was still being done. so and To me, busing was a complete disaster because you were taking kids and making them go an hour, an hour and a half away from their own communities And forcing them into it, it just was a terrible thing. And it it brought more of it out. I don't know that it did anything to heal the problem. And the, the, the two busloads of, of black children that came to our school, especially in junior high, kind of all hung together because they felt that they were, I mean, think about how, you know, we felt is because kids are not that smart and you've been told these things by your parents and you see them as a threat. But imagine how they feel because there are two busloads coming to a school that every day has 20 buses. So there's 18 busloads and kids, uh, white kids, and you know what? There's a lot more than that because a lot of them walk to school, ride their bike to school, get dropped off by their parents. None of you do that because you're going 40 miles away from where your home is. That wasn't good. So I understand the problem. And I think a lot of people that are in their 20s instead of their 40s understand it a lot less because of this, the fact the problem is waning, that there is more interaction with people, that we're getting past a lot of it, but it's still there. And the older you go on both sides of the coin, brother, the more you will find of it. So how do we get beyond that? And how does a person of any color choose to live in a place where maybe they're going to be a minority? The answer is on some levels, you just do it and you become a good member of the community and most people will accept you. And the people that won't are assholes. And they should be ostracized and ignored by the rest of the community. Now, that doesn't mean that you should move to a community where it is largely racist against your race. I don't care if you're black, white, green, orange, or, or rectangular with pink, pink, pur pink, and purple, pink and purple polka dots. You, you, I mean, don't go out of your way to go somewhere where you know you're going to have trouble. And I think the biggest thing you can do is start to visit with people and talk to people. I also want you to think about another dynamic at play 
that starts to fix this issue and, and, and enable people to go to a place where they're, they're going to feel like they're part of a community. You're driving down the road in your little small town of 100 people that's predominantly black, white, green, whatever color you are. So don't make it one or the other. It's not like there's not any rural communities out there that are predominantly black. I've driven through some of them. I've seen them. And uh, so you're going through there, and everybody matches, and, and you see two people standing on the street that are not your race. And they're clearly not. I mean, in some way that stands out. You're not going to miss them. But standing right next to them and talking to them in a very clearly welcoming, happy, interactive manner is somebody you know very well, a friend of yours. And you can it's clear that they're not shaking him down for money or nothing like that, or they're not assaulting him or anything. They're they're laughing and joking and slapping each other on the back and having a good time. What happens to your suspicion and your concern? It's gone from being suspicious to interesting. Who are these people that are here? Clearly they know Joe. Joe's cool. They must be all right. And unless you're a racist asshole, and if you are, don't listen to my show. If you're a racist asshole, go find other racist assholes to cavort with. You, your, your population is waning in number, and we want you gone. The decent people of the world that don't hate people because of the way they look don't want you anymore. Go away, to be completely clear. Normal people would be like, maybe I should meet those folks too. What are they doing here? Nobody comes here. This is Sheboyganville. Remember, I've made Sheboyganville up. It doesn't work. It doesn't exist. It's anywhere USA. Nobody comes to Sheboyganville. I'd like to know who those people are. You might even stop and go, hey, Joe, who are your two friends? And Joe might go, oh, I just met them, but they're from over here, and they're looking at the Wilson's old farm. And all of a sudden, there's so there's got to be an entry point into any community, and generally that's through relationships, which are formed in supermarkets and country clubs and uh, in bars. And I mean, you know, and if I were a black man, would I walk into, uh, you know, kind of a Harley bar uh, with a whole bunch of motorcycles out there without knowing anybody in the place first? And the answer is probably no. And as a white man, I probably wouldn't walk into kind of a, 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 a soul R&B club uh, in the middle of Harlem without knowing anybody there. Maybe both of us should, but there's a natural concern and fear. And again, we have to admit that there's at times a reason for that fear. But I think the first step is for people to start talking to each other based on common ideals and things like that. I can tell you right now. That I, my take is you're a black male. I don't know that because you didn't specifically say that, but I'm going to assume that. And there's a piece of land right next to mine that I wouldn't recommend for you because if it was priced fairly, I would probably buy it. And the guy that owns it is retarded, and he thinks it's worth like 20 times what it is. But let's say it was a reasonable price, and I couldn't buy it. I would welcome you right here. I would help you build your freaking house. And if there's people like me, then there's more people like me. So it's a matter of finding a place where you're accepted. So the real answer is to find a community that's acceptive of you, period. Because trust me, there's people that are not going to be accepting of me, even though they're white too. Because I'm a crazy survivalist. I want chickens and, and geese running around my property. There's plenty of places where I would be ostracized and not wanted for that. Is it the same problem? No, but it's the same solution. You find a place where you fit in. And you don't give up a damn thing. 
And I have to tell you that there are few things in the world that would give me more pleasure than more minorities, if you want to use that term in a general term, paying attention to the Survival Podcast and talking to other people within their community about it. To understand that just because you hear survivalist doesn't equal white racist. I will tell you that a lot of people that fancy themselves survivalists, and they're generally not the type of survivalist we talk about around here, are there is a group of scum out there that have one of the biggest white supremacist forums on the Internet today. I won't dignify you by telling you who they are or using their name, and don't link to them from my forum, even for informational purposes, because I will delete it and possibly ban you from my website. I will not help a hate group spread their message. I won't do it. But early on in the show, because I was talking about the government sucking, because I was talking about the problems in America, and because I was a survivalist, a contingent of these idiots, these inbred, backwoods, moronic idiots at this place, decided I was one of their own. And they had a couple forum discussions about me that I found out about. And I went off on them on the air and basically said what I did today. If that's you, don't listen to my show. I have no time for you. I don't want you. You are vehement scum. And it seemed like all of a sudden they weren't fans of the Survival Podcast anymore. And nothing can make me happier than that. Because I don't want those people listening. Unless you're starting to separate from it and you're beginning to get an open mind and, and learn the reality. And again, this is, this is tough stuff. Well, let's be honest about some of the things that could help the problem as well. Um, It is absolutely the case that many people that are in minority races use it as an excuse for failure to achieve. Stop doing that. I'm not saying this guy's not. He probably isn't. But I'm saying, and, and within your own communities, you need to say, when somebody says, man, they won't hire me because I'm black, you need to say, you know, son, get your ass up and get a job. Okay? I mean, that, that needs to come from within the black community or within the Hispanic community. You know, be on, there's a guy that's got the biggest job in the country right now. So if he can get a job, you can get a job. Why don't you get off your ass and get a job? But let's talk about who the real culprit is here, where this all comes from. It's the government. An email one time from somebody that I wasn't very tolerant with, but it was a, it was a black female who told me, I can't go to your forum anymore because there's so many racists there. That was the whole email. And I was like, there better not be. So I start scanning the form. I mean, I, I don't spend much time in my own forum. So I'm like pissed now. I can't find nothing. And I, I emailed her back. Said, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, we don't tolerate that. It's in our terms of service. Nobody's, uh, in fact, sometimes the moderators are too sensitive and they take things to be racist that aren't racist. What the hell are you talking about? And there's like all these comments about people on welfare. And my response was, why are you being racist against your own color? To brought back, what are you talking about? So why are you deciding that, that when somebody says welfare, it's code for black? And the reason is your government has taught both sides to think that way. If I say welfare mama, there's a lot of people that in their heads, no matter what color they are, are going to see a black lady with a bunch of kids hanging on her. And a daddy that ain't around, or maybe multiple daddies that ain't around. Why? It's been marketed to you. Because there's a lot of white welfare mamas, there's a lot of Hispanic welfare mamas. And they're all part of the problem. And the, and the problem has been created on purpose. 
We have generations of people of all races that have lived on government handouts that don't even know how to be productive anymore. But we've marketed that it's the minorities that do it the most. And if you believe that marketing, pull your head out of your ass. Because I can show you plenty of white people on food stamps and, and welfare. Plenty. I can pl show you plenty of white people that live in projects. You know, that town I grew up in with so many racist people, we had projects there. And we had all the problems that projects, not in big cities, tend to have, but in small towns tend to have. And there were almost no black people living in those projects because, well, there were almost no black people living in the whole place. Somebody was living there. Guess what color they were? They were white people. Living off the same system that we marketed for years and years and years, it was the black people. And that we're marketing today, it's the immigrant people. It is universal. It is people without money who are taking advantage of the system or have been part of the system so long they don't even know that there's another way and have been convinced that other people can, but they can't. The government is the problem. So the biggest solution to this issue is for people to stop giving a damn about what color somebody is and just be who they are and start judging people, in the words of one of the most famous black gentlemen of all time, by the content of their character. I believe that that is more true today than at any time in America's history. And I believe it was more true in, in the middle of some of the civil rights movements in the 1960s than it was 30 years before that. And I believe that even at that time it was more true than it was 30 years before that. So I don't have an easy answer, but all I can tell you is that you and other people from your community are welcome at the Survival Podcast any day. And if anybody does anything specifically to make you feel unwelcome, let me know and I'll let them know how unwelcome they are. And I know that there's plenty of communities that are probably like what you want, where you would be very welcome. And you need to understand that because you want to run into one racist asshole, that that person is not to be taken as a representative of the location itself. Because I'm sure within a couple miles of my home, I can find a couple racist assholes. I can also assure you that the majority of the people here aren't. And whatever's left in them as a, as a shadow of that racism will probably be functionally less in their children and in their children's children, and that this is a wound that is healing. And there's still a long way to go, but we're on the right track. And probably the best thing that's ever happened for it is the Internet. So I would really like to reach out to anybody out there that's of what you would consider a minority race that listens to this show to share this show with other people. Take your finger off the trigger. Realize that we're not here to hurt you in this community. And that survivalist doesn't equal racist. And preparedness is something that's important for all people, no matter what color they may be. And when it comes to where you want to live, you live where you want to live. And seek a community that's accepting of you. And understand that the race component is only one part. And it's probably less important if you want to keep chickens to being whether or not you're allowed to keep chickens. And that there are these pockets, and they're pretty evident, and they're pretty obvious. But make sure you don't judge me by the color of my skin if you don't want me to judge you by the color of yours. Again, 
Some somebody has to lower the shields and take their finger off the phaser trigger. I'm doing the best I can with it. I've been completely honest about this subject. I've been completely honest about my background. I've been completely honest about my own personal bias over the years and how I struggled to let go of it. And I will tell you what cured me of the little bit of it that my family part planted in me, the United States Army. Because when you have to serve with people of all races, of all backgrounds, of all, and it's not just, you know, well, this guy's black, this guy's from Puerto Rico, this guy's from Florida, this guy's from Tennessee, whatever. It's also income backgrounds. It's income backgrounds as well. It's stations in life. It's where you're going next. Because you got guys that are like, I'm staying in the Army because it's all I got. And you guys, guys that are getting out and going to college. And you got guys that are like, I'm going, not just going to college, I'm coming back in as an officer. And I mean, you learn to get along when you have no choice. And um, I think that's a big part of it too. If we can start learning to get along with people even when we don't necessarily like them, that doesn't mean hang out and be best friends with people we don't like. That's just dumb. But if you can learn to get along with people you don't like, you can get a lot of this shit out of the way. But please, sir, tell other people within your community that this is a place where everybody's accepted. At least everybody based on you know the color of their skin or their religion or anything like that. But we don't accept around here as people that judge people for those things. Because that ignorance should have died a long time ago. And I'm sorry, but that is the best I can do on that subject. Hey, Jack, this is Todd with the Prepper website. Hey, I um, recently saw a video where uh, you were out in the garden at your new place, and you were feeling under the weather, and you talked a little bit about building up your blood pressure and, and uh, doing that. And I uh, just wanted to see if you would elaborate a little bit about that or uh, if you don't feel comfortable talking about the medical issues, if maybe you could point us to some resources online, some of the things that you've looked at before in the past. Hey, thanks so much for what you do. Well, it's easier question to answer for the last one of the day than the last one, so cool. It can be a little bit more light on this. Um, I don't have any medical research. I've never even done any. I don't even care. Um, what a doctor would say about this, and I'm sure there are illnesses that if you're taking out bad enough, rest is what you indeed need. But I grew up pretty damn poor when it really came down to it. Um, I didn't know I was poor, like most of the people that grew up poor in uh, in, in my time. Uh, we really didn't know. I mean, you had everything you needed, so you wouldn't consider yourself poor. But, you know, we never owned a home until I was in my teens, and... Um, you know, we, when I, by the time I was in Pennsylvania, we were back in that little coal town in Pennsylvania that I just talked a lot about. And there were really not any, you know, rich people there were people that lived the way everybody kind of lives in a, in a well-developed area in a, in a city. I mean, that was considered rich. If you had, you know, if you could go out and buy a new vehicle, you were rich. And now anybody can go out and buy a new vehicle. And, um, that meant that if something needed to be done and you weren't laying flat out totally sick and unable to work, you went out and did it anyway. And, you know, when you're trying to, you know, make sports teams and things like that, if you're feeling a little bit under the weather, but they're doing cuts this week, you just work through it. And then 
you know, you get in the army and if you can walk and carry your weapon, well, you're, you're good to go. And then I got out of the army and I, I, I got here to Texas and I got whatever jobs I could coming up in my early twenties and, and wanted more. And, you know, you can barely pay the rent every month. And if you don't feel that good today, well, you don't have time to be sick. You go and work. And there's been a couple times over 20 years where I've been so sick, I was laid up and had to be laid up. Um, I, I guess I've gotten a reputation for getting sick about once a year um, with the show. And I think that's because I use my voice so much and I have to project to use my voice. So if I get a cough or any kind of congestion in my throat, uh, with having to do, you know, five, ten hours of broadcasting every week, my voice will get a lot weaker from that illness than a person who just was, you know, sitting down and typing. So you guys get a perception, well, he's really sick. And well, I'm not sick. I've got a cold. I've stuffed up. I'm a little achy. I've got a fever, whatever. I can go out and work. But this is what I've learned over the years of having that attitude. If someone gets kind of the same thing I do, and it takes them seven to ten days to get over it, with the exception of the voice thing, because you're you're talking about your vocal cords and and it's scratchy and you're forcing it right, you're damaging it from that, and it's audible. My recovery time shorter. If it takes you seven to ten days to get over it, I get my ass out in the garden and start digging and just get the body pumping. And it, to me, it, 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 I don't know if it's that the, the disease doesn't fully get to take root. I don't know if it's just an attitude thing. I don't know what it is, but it just seems to 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 run its course much quicker. Now I'm sure there's you know serious illness. I had the flu one year. By the way, in 20 years, it was the one freaking year I believed the bullshit and got my flu shot. I got the flu so bad, I got empathy for older Americans for the first time in my life. I was in my early 20s. I was in that I'll chew rocks and spit bullets attitude, and I mean just oh chicken. And I got this flu. And the first day was a little bad, and the second day I ended up using one of my personal days off. So I didn't have sick days. You had PTO, and you only got so many days a year, which you want to use for vacation. So you'll work sick so that you can actually get and take your vacation. I had to use a couple days of it. And my body aches so bad, and as a fever spiked, I remember going to the store and buying you know, over-the-counter meds for fever. This is before I prepped. I didn't have anything like this back then. I didn't have money for anything like this back then, and some juice and stuff like that. And I lived in a second-story apartment, and I, and I remember literally pulling myself up the stairs and then running a cool water bath and taking a bunch of Tylenol and drinking a bunch of apple juice and laying in the cool water bath just to break the fever. So I, And then I was chilled and you know sick, and I mean, it was just a miserable flu. Again, one time in 20 years, I took the flu shot, and it's the flu. I'm not saying it's proof of anything. I'm just saying this is what happened. But with anything short of that type of thing, I've always just worked through it. And so when I tell you I, well, I can't do the show today, it's not that I can't do it. It's that it'll suck because it'll be like, oh, this is Jack Spirico, and uh, I wanted to tell you what I thought today about permaculture. And you're like, I can't listen to this crap. This, I mean, my, my, my voice is part of the, um, the overall experience of the survival podcast. Some of you will mock my accent because if I get really pissed off, I go northeastern and I'm really happy and, and go lucky and enjoy myself. I kind of become the southern boy that I guess I am. And it's because I grew up in the south and the north. I grew up in both places. It's just, it's just who I am. It's not intentional. It just happens that way. Um, but, 
that's part of what I do. So if you came to see a rock concert, and I was a rock guy, and I sung rock music, and, and my voice sucked, I would have to cancel the concert because you paid to hear me sing, and now I can't. So when you guys hear me say, oh, i got to take a couple days off, it's generally um, a voice issue. It's not that I can't do it. It's that I can't perform at the level that you've come to expect from me. And my experience with a lot of things this way um, – I've, my father has had the same experience. I know one time he stepped on a nail. He got an infection in the bone of his foot. He was on all kinds of antibiotics. The doctors told him to stay off it. It got inflamed. It got worse. He was given shots, and it was getting worse and worse and worse. And finally, in his words, he said, F it, and he used the actual word, and just went back to work and worked harder than he he'd worked and dealt with it, and it went away. And he was like, I, you know, it's, it's, your body is, is active. And because it's active, it can fight. And when it can fight, it can win. And when you're laying there in bed or laying on your butt, you're not doing that. So again, there are certain illnesses where I'm sure exerting yourself can make it worse. But I think in the majority of the situations where we urge people to lay down, it's, it's probably counterproductive. And if there's anybody out in the medical community that actually is a medical doctor with medical credentials that can back that up in any way, uh, I'd like to hear it. I don't know if they teach you guys the truth in medical school about things like that, but all I can tell you is my, my observatory evidence has been that I actually have a much better recover period if I do not lay down. And maybe it goes back to another thing my dad taught me. My dad taught me about working hard and put ethics into me when I was young. And he said, in my day, if a guy laid down more than five minutes, we figured he was dead and started burying him. And that was just, that was just the attitude. I mean, you're supposed to work. You're supposed to get things done. You, you know, I mean, you're just not supposed to lay around on your ass. That's what rich people do. So I, I, that's where I'm coming from on that. But in my experience, it does have, some level of a therapeutic effect, and I maybe I'll put it to you this way. You're less miserable. You're less miserable because you're working, and I think a lot of things work that way, that when you sit still and think about it, you focus on the symptoms, and when you're doing other things, you don't. If you're depressed, the best thing you can do is pick up your, your shovel and go out in the garden and work. Depression is an illness, too. So that's my thoughts on that. With that, I am going to wrap up today. Uh, I'd like to remind you guys, because I didn't do it in the introduction segment, about the Member Support Brigade. If you think you got 20 cents worth of value today, please consider joining. It's about 18.3 cents an episode is what it really comes out to. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, Prior Service. Email me before you join. Put subject dis uh, put the, 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 the subject of a service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. And I will send you that discount code uh, to thank you for your service and make the deal even better for you. With that, I hope everybody got a lot out of today. I hope I did uh, a good job on a very tough question. And again, to the gentleman that called that question, and thank you very much for asking it. And again, uh, know that you are always welcome here. And when I say that, I don't just mean the TSP community. I mean right in my own home. If you'd ever like to come out here and learn more about what I'm doing, just like any other listener, get in touch with me. We'll make arrangements and we'll make that happen. With that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't
there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Shut